This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for January 25th. The federal liberals head into a caucus strategy session on shaky legs as one MP backtracks on calls for a review of the prime minister's leadership and a former justice minister says he's stepping away from politics. Plus, MPs make their way back to Ottawa for the return of Parliament. Two former chiefs of staff to prime ministers break down what to expect as things ramp back up on the Hill. And Tucker Carlson brings controversy to Alberta. The power panel reacts to Carlson's message and the Alberta Premier's response. Liberal MP Ken McDonald made waves this week when he said that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau should undergo a leadership review. You go from a majority government to a minority government, there's supposed to be a leadership review. That hasn't happened. You think at least there should be a leadership review in the Liberal Yes, let's clear the air. Let's, you know, let's, as a party, let's clear the air. And... But today, McDonald tried to walk that back, writing in a statement, the intent of my recent public comments was not to personally call for a leadership review, and I am not calling for one now. I will continue to support my caucus colleagues and the Prime Minister, as I've done since 2015. I'm joined now by the government House Leader, Steve McKinnon. Mr. McKinnon, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I, I notice uh, most of the MPs appear to be here for caucus, except for Ken McDonald. His presence was felt, but physically he's not here. Is Ken McDonald still a liberal in good standing with your caucus right now? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, Ken's a colorful guy. Uh, Ken uh, has, has a lot of uh, opinions on a lot of things. Uh, he's one of the best hecklers in the House of Commons. Um, and uh, we've always prided ourselves on uh, having a diversity of views and a good, healthy exchange all the time. He's supposed to heckle the other guys, though. And, and, and he say, does. And he does. To, but, but to say that, like, I know he's issued a statement clarifying that he didn't mean to call for a leadership review, though the plain meaning of the words he said on camera suggests that's what he's saying needed mm -hmm. to be done. But he's also said that all governments have their best before date, and your government has hit your best before date. How is that going over with the caucus? Well, the caucus meeting I just left, uh, I've never seen more determination to get results for Canadians, uh, to get things done. We have a very busy agenda coming up in the House of Commons uh, this winter, this spring, uh, and our determination is to get results for Canadians, to help with the cost of living, uh, to confront um, uh, climate change, to take on the issues of the day that people are concerned about. Uh, we understand that Canadians um, are experiencing high interest rates. We understand that groceries cost a lot of money. We understand that things uh, are tough out there. Uh, but better days are ahead. Uh, we're looking down the field, I think, at some very promising economic statistics. I'd obviously let Christia Freeland talk more freely about that. But um, we are very confident as we go into this session that live, the, the lives of Canadians will, will be better. And Canada is so full of promise, David. Uh, and uh, part of the, our meeting today was really to talk about that promise of Canada and the confidence that Canadians should have. Okay, I want to talk about some of that, but just one more question about, about Mr. McDonald. Will there be any consequences for him? He has voted against this government uh, a couple of times on things like uh, on carbon tax when it comes to home heating, and now he's done this. Is there any consequence for him, or is he skate on this? I don't believe so. I'm not the whip anymore. I, I was uh, of late the whip. Uh, 
uh, and I'm, I have no doubt that my successor, uh, Ruby Sahoda, has had conversations uh, with Mr. McDonald, but um, uh, Ken, as far as I'm aware, is a full-fledged member of the Liberal Caucus. Okay, someone who is about to leave the Liberal Caucus is David Lametti, the mm. former uh, Justice Minister and Attorney General, who yes. I, I think surprised a lot of people by announcing that he would be resigning effective January 31st. He says in his uh, resignation letter and in a conversation he had with my colleague Catherine Cullen that it's been difficult since he left cabinet to kind of find purpose as a member of parliament is how I interpret his words. And he was never really given a clear explanation as to why he was demoted. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on the departure of David Lametti? Well, David Lametti is uh, 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 someone I consider to be a friend, uh, someone who's made great contributions, passed, helped, helped us pass uh, a lot of very good legislation, was a very good attorney general, very good justice minister. He'll be a loss. Um, uh, you know, a bilingual Montrealer and just a great soul, a great character. Um, He's chosen to move uh, uh, into other pastures, and I know, have no doubt he'll make a great, significant contribution, but I also have no doubt uh, that he'll be a very, very loyal and uh, committed liberal as we move forward as well. It means another by-election, uh, unless you're going to have a federal election within six months or so. Uh, on top of uh, in Carolyn Bennett's uh, old seat in Toronto, how many more of these do you think you might have? There have been people who were demoted from cabinet, people getting maybe near the end of a political career. What kind of churn and turnover do you expect this year? Look, the commitment that I witness in the Liberal caucus to get results for Canadians, I think, uh, speaks for itself and will continue to speak for itself as this session unfolds. Of course, there are people, uh, you know, in any normal organization, with 338 members of parliament, you're going to see some turnover. Anyone who works in an organization that big or bigger uh, knows that that turnover is a normal thing. Uh, that will happen. We regret it when it happens uh, with a member of our team, as we do in the case of Mr. Lametti. Um, so undoubtedly, th there will be there there will be others. Hopefully, not very many others. Uh, but there's an exceptional team uh, willing to tackle these big issues and uh, go into this parliament with a lot of confidence. We saw the Prime Minister give a speech to caucus today where he talked about the affordability issues and the economic issues that you've outlined and also with some pointed attacks on, on the Conservatives yeah. and Mr. Polyev in particular. On dealing with the affordability issues that are still plaguing Canadians, even though the inflation numbers have softened considerably from their peak, there's been a recognition by people in your own government you're too slow to get on this, housing and on cost of living. What do you do now in the time you have left to, to, to make that situation easier for Canadians? Well, what you're seeing is a daily focus on these issues and proposals put forward to the House of Commons. You know, I'm the government house leader. Mm -hmm. uh, we put forward these proposals all the time into the House of Commons. We voted for 30 hours straight on a series of measures uh, and programs that will help Canadians today. But what do we get? Obstruction. We don't get alternatives. We don't get proposals from the other side. We get obstruction. So as we go into this session, we're going to keep putting those things to the House of Commons, as, uh, which is the temple of our democracy. We're going to keep putting proposals on the table that will help Canadians in their everyday lives. And what uh, I hope we get from the other side is um, a little more constructive criticism. We ex certainly expect criticism. We expect analysis. But obstruction, I don't think Canadians are going to stand for that. Right. But I mean, that's the process in, inside Parliament. Um, if you listen to what Mr. McDonald had to say, if you look at public opinion numbers, there is an erosion in the public confidence in your government to be the people who can fix the things that are bothering them mm -hmm. and, and hurting them. Why do you think confidence in your government has, has dropped so precipitously since last summer. Look, if you look around the world, you know, we've had global uh, supply chain issues. We have two major uh, wars going on in the Middle East and in Europe. 
These are things that are unsettling to people. A climate crisis that is causing wildfires and floods, uh, and indeed economic conditions, post largely post-pandemic, uh, a global pandemic. You see it in China. You see it in the United States. You see it in emerging uh, economies. You see it throughout Europe. Governments, unfortunately, uh, governments of the day, of all uh, ideologies and political stripes, um, have trouble coping with tough economic conditions. We know that things are tough for Canadians. We understand that it costs more to put groceries uh, in the fridge. We understand that rent costs more. We've put forward some concrete things to help deal with those. And, but, you know, some, sometimes these things take effect in a large developed country like Canada, of 40 million people. Uh, you know, some of these things aren't going to bite for uh, the minute that you put them into place, but they are going to bite. Good policies have been implemented, will continue to be implemented. We will overcome these housing challenges. We will overcome uh, inflation as a society. Uh, and uh, I'm very, very confident about the outlook for Canada as we move ahead. Do you have enough time? Do you have, like, the runway? Uh, these things are slow, right? Uh, house, houses take time. And I know you're not solely responsible for housing by any means, but you're bearing a lot of the political cost for the housing challenges. A lot of these things, with the runway you have left and the economic forecast in that time period, it's not lining up necessarily as an easy path for you. Elections, whenever they come, uh, whenever the next one comes, will be a choice. Canadians will have a choice. Uh, we're going to be very confident about the solutions that we have put forward, that we're putting forward, and a vision of Canada. You know, what we're inviting people to do is listen to our opposition, listen to what Mr. Polyev says, but also listen to what he doesn't say. You know, he says he'd cut a lot of spending. Where is that going to come from? Is it your child care? Is it the Canada Child Benefit? Is it climate change? Where exactly is it going to come from? He will say that it's this and that, very minor thing that both of us know that uh, wouldn't uh, begin to solve uh, the kind of prog uh, problem that he describes. So we're going to put two competing visions on the table. Uh, we're very confident in the vision that we'll be putting forward. We're going to be calling out our opponents on the vision that they'll be putting forward, and uh, we're very confident as we move ahead. Humble, but confident. Just as a final point, because uh, the Prime Minister started doing that in his speech today, he put much more of an aggressive focus on Pierre Polyev than we have typically seen uh, from, from the party leadership over the past year or so, and there has been frustration in your caucus that you've been too much on the defensive, not enough aggressiveness, and not enough attempts to define your main opponent. What we saw today, is that what we should expect going forward, and is, is this because the caucus was, was getting impatient with the lack of Look, Pierre Polyev talks about Justin Trudeau as the author of every possible misfortune. You know, sleet is Justin Trudeau's fault. Uh, um, and uh, indeed, I think it's um, uh, important for us to be pointing out the contradictions in Mr. Polyev's discourse, the, the contradictions that he puts forward, the implausibility utter implausibility of any kind of fiscal plan that he will put forward. So Mr. Polyev talks and talks and talks, doesn't propose anything, and we're going to be inviting Canadians to consider carefully what he says and what he doesn't say. Steve McKinnon, Government House Leader, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Well, as we mentioned, former Justice Minister David Lametti announced today that he would be leaving political life after eight years as an MP. More than half of those years were spent in Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's cabinet. In an interview with CBC Radio's The House, Lametti talked about how he found out he was dropped from Trudeau's front bench this summer and his decision to step down from politics today. That was sudden. There's no question. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I met the Prime Minister the day before, and uh, I was informed of the decision. I had no inkling uh, before that. Um, we all expected a shuffle, and after four and a half years as Justice Minister, I 
had been well prepared by my team uh, to perhaps move uh, somewhere else around the cabinet table. Um, and that, that would have been fine. Um, in the end, I was left out. And uh, I decided at that point to start thinking about other options. Although I also, I also did my best to try to stay, to see, you know, I committed to my constituents in, in La Salamar at Verdun. Um, and I, I really did put in an effort uh, to, to make it work. Um, but in the end, I think my mental health and, and my, my, sense of, my sense of happiness is also important to being an effective MP. And I don't think I could carry on. And you can tune in for that full interview with Catherine Cullen on the House this Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 9.30 in Newfoundland. Well, turning now to some news out of Edmonton, where the federal New Democrats wrapped their three-day caucus strategy session. CBC News has learned some new details about negotiations between the Liberal government and the NDP on a pharmacare deal. The CBC's David Thurton is in Edmonton for us tonight. So, David, what, what have you learned about these talks? Yeah, well, a senior NDP source is telling me, David, that they've gotten the Liberals to agree to covering uh, a couple of critical drugs that Canadians need sooner rather than later. So basically what was in play, as far as we could tell, was just um, when, we, when it comes to negotiations on pharmacare between the Liberals and the NDP was just the legislation which would enshrine the values of pharmacare, how provinces would opt in, what the system would look like, what the federal government's responsibilities were. But a senior NDP source is telling me what's also in play right now is that the Liberals have agreed to some sort of plan to cover a couple of drugs. So it would be less than five drugs, what I'm hearing. It would cover a couple of critical medicines that Canadians need right now. So um, perhaps diabetes medication, perhaps medication for hypertension, uh, that kind of thing. It would be an initial first step to realizing a pharmacare plan along with enshrining that legislation. So I'm hearing from a senior NDP source that that sort of is a situation that's in play. The NDP is working with the Liberals to develop not just pharmacare legislation, but also what seems to be the coverage of a couple of drugs sooner rather than later. We weren't expecting this until much later on, perhaps 2025, 2026. From what I'm hearing from that NDP source, David, it could come much sooner. Okay, uh, th that's some progress because there have been some sticking points in, in these negotiations, right? So what are some of the issues still to be resolved? Well, that senior NDP source and Jagmeet Singh himself um, is, are telling me that what seems to be one of the sticking points that seems to be a huge issue between the Liberals and the NDP seems to be what exactly do we mean? What, what exactly do we mean by pharmacare? For the Liberals, uh, there's some varying interpre interpretations of what uh, pharmacare means. Uh, it could mean a fill-in-the-gap approach, I'm hearing from the NDP. Uh, it can mean a universal system. But the NDP has been pretty clear, David, for the most part, on what they mean by pharmacare. It's a universal, public, single-payer system. So uh, from what I'm hearing from the party, that seems to be the sticking, uh, the sticking point here. They can't really come to an agreement on what exactly pharmacare mm -hmm. means. And we heard this from Jagmeet Singh when he was speaking earlier today to reporters. I asked him specifically, you know, what is the sticking point? And here's what he had to say. We have been very clear that the pharmacare plan should work for people. We're, we are a party founded by workers, and we want to make sure that the pharmacare, the, the medication coverage, we want to make sure that everyday families can be able to afford their medication. That's our goal. 
The liberals were more concerned about protecting the interests of pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies, and that has been our impasse. We disagree on that. So uh, there you have it from Jagmeet Singh. Uh, he is saying that the, the issue seems to be, one of the issues seems to be what exactly is Pharmacare. They believe in a universal public single-payer uh, system. But look, negotiations continue to iron out those issues. We heard from Don Davies, the NDP health critic, that he's been texting with Holland uh, and they plan on having a meeting this next week, excuse me, the week, this week's almost over, next week, of course, and that is the week Parliament returns. And uh, there could be, you know, some major progress perhaps on ironing out a Pharmacare deal then. Okay, David, great work. Thanks very much. This is CBC's David Thurton in Edmonton. But what we have to pay attention to, and what we do pay attention to, is bringing our community's voices to here in Ottawa. We don't need the Prime Minister to change. We need to change the Prime Minister. We need a common-sense, conservative Prime Minister who will axe the tax to bring home lower prices. But we have shown that we can use our power to get people help. We're not here to cut. We're here to build up programs that will lift up people. Well, the federal parties are gearing up for the return of Parliament on Monday with the Liberal Caucus meeting in Ottawa today and the NDP wrapping up their caucus meeting in Edmonton. After more than a month away, what should we be watching for this winter sitting? I'm joined now by two former chiefs of staff to two former prime ministers. Tim Murphy was chief of staff to Prime Minister Paul Martin and David McLaughlin was chief of staff to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So. So, Tim, this was the week where the Liberals are going to do a bit of a reset, and then a federal court judge found that their use of the Emergency Act was unconstitutional. Ken McDonald said it's time to review the leadership of the Prime Minister, and today David Lametti quit. How do you think the reset's going? Well, I think they have some things that started to go well and a few things that didn't. Look, <laughs> unquestionably, one of the things that they have to kind of get behind them is the, uh, as I think John Crosby once said, the nattering nabobs of negativism. And so they need to obviously have the team united and all speaking with one voice. And part of that involves, you know, creating a message and a narrative uh, that they can all believe in, they all carry. I think you're starting to see some of that around the notion. And you heard the, the prime minister early in the week speak about trying to frame around uh, spending cuts versus investments. I think they need to speak a bit to the, you know, more than they have to, you know, what's really happening out there around affordability and housing. You're starting to see some of that. Um, and, and then I think the third element that the Liberals need to do is actually, and you're seeing some of this too, is go after the Conservatives who, you know, you saw Tucker Carlson in Alberta, you know, some of the MAGA stuff, uh, and try to see to what extent they can you know, pin the Conservatives with some of that. I mean, who are obviously having, you know, a very good run of it. Their numbers are excellent. Uh, and I think, to be honest with you, the person I would be most afraid for right now is Jagmeet Singh. I think the NDP have a, a problem of A, relevance, but B, of a really being squeezed between the two main parties. I, I think nattering nabobs of negativism was... Spiro Agnew, right. who was Nixon's first vice president. Oh, so correct. I, I, and that right. didn't end too well for him. Crosby may have quoted him, but I think it came from Agnew. <laughs> uh, David, uh, I mean, when you look at this dynamic, right, the, 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 the liberals kind of criticized in Charlottetown when they had their cabinet retreat of not having any big announcements. So they did have a, a more aggressive housing agenda throughout the fall. They had a few things mm -hmm. uh, this week. And 
a little bit more focus in their attack on Polyev today when the prime minister spoke. Where do you think they are right now? Really nowhere. I mean, in the sense that uh, that those are all, um, you know, I guess things that'll help. Uh, but really, the, the, look at, let's look at what the Liberals have going for them. They have time to the extent that they are not going to go for an early election, and Jagmeet Singh and the NDP will prop them up. So they have a year and a half, although that time is running out. The other thing they have going for them, potentially, it looks like a likely improving economy. So the broader economic numbers underneath should be a bit better than that. But having said that, I don't really think this Liberal government has done much to advance its own message about itself as to why they should be re-elected. And if they think that by just focusing on the other guys, I mean, there's always a contrast and a choice that happens in uh, in politics and campaigns, fair enough. But if they think that the Conservatives and Polyev are going to implode or somehow this mega stuff and the Trump kind of uh, cloaking him with the Trump, uh, you know, uh, uh, label and that is going to have an impact, I don't think it will. At the end of the day, this government suffers from a lack of focus it suffers from an inability to be consistent on what it's focusing on, and it and it and it lacks a clarity and uh, of message that resonates with real people. And you just saw it in those clips, bringing communities together. It's very up there, very mm. ephemeral, very nice sounding. Versus Mr. Poliev, axe attacks, get rid of the prime minister, focusing on affordability and that kind of thing. That is still their core problem. And until they confront that. I think they're they're going to find themselves still well behind, not just behind, but well behind. So, Tim, I, I'm not sure if you share that uh, diagnosis in terms of a lack of focus, at least when it comes to messaging. But when your main messenger has become so unpopular over the past year, uh, how much of a challenge is it to punch through? I mean, you can sharpen the message. You got to deliver, and you got to be seen as credible on delivering as well, right? Although it, I think there's a bit of overlap because I don't disagree with David, actually. I think they're, you know, they've been a bit all over the place. I mean, partly because that's the nature of government events come at you and throw you off messaging, as we saw this week. Um, the self-inflicted wounds uh, should stop, however. But that being said, I do agree. I think that they have been uh, searching for a way to connect with the issues and challenges voters have had. They started to do some of that around housing. I think, you know... Fraser has done a pretty good job in terms of looking like there's action and things going. But I think part of the, the, you know, what we're seeing in the challenges around the prime minister's popularity comes with people not seeing him talk about what they're feeling in their daily lives, that anxiety around affordability, around housing, around kind of economic challenges looking forward. Uh, And I think, you know, I think there is room for improvement in the prime minister's uh, popularity as he gets better at focusing on that, talking about that, communicating in the way that connects. And I do, you know, uh, I'm not sure I agree with David on one other point, which is I do think the, you know, the compare and contrast continues to be important. And I think you saw that in that abacus poll, right? Which said, you know, the people, the potential voter pool of people who are scared of a Polyev government actually gets you up into the mid, potentially high 30s, which then suddenly changes the dynamic of a race. The problem is I think the liberals need to get themselves set up for that, but then there's an interesting opportunity created by that pool of people who are afraid of a Polyev government. That being said, there's a significant pool on the other side, and then it comes down to a real ground war riding by riding. So, you know, two observations in response to what Tim is yeah. saying. So, yes, I mean, surely you're going to do your contrast. I'm this versus the other guy. That No question. Uh, but re- my point is relying on that, either exclusively or too much on that, I think will not 
serve the liberals well. They still need to have the positive message about what do they get. Why does it matter yeah. to have Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau? Why does it matter to still have the liberals in government? Until they can make that case, it really won't work to just do the negative contrast. We saw that in Manitoba. The PC government there ran a negative campaign against Wab Canoe and the NDP, basically saying he's a risk. It yeah. doesn't actually translate. The second part is uh, is time will, is, is also in Mr. Poiliev's favor. And that The more that Mr. Poiliev is out there and leading in that this the fear of him will dissipate and so there's a chance surely they'll bring it, the liberals will try to bring it back but i'm betting that it'll be less effective later on in part because they squandered that early opportunity to define mr Poliev when they had that chance yeah. it's just that much harder now yeah, it's forward. something that that i talked about that with steve mckinnon you hear this from backbenchers you hear this from liberal operators like why have we waited yeah. so long is what they say but but you know you know tim i want to go back to what you said you jugmeet singh you think is in, in in the weakest position or maybe the most vulnerable position here yeah. when you speak to liberals how they see a path back they know they've kind of lost male voters in a big way maybe to the point that they can't get them back in critical mass they think women young people uh that's their shot but to force get seniors back seniors but yeah. to force progressives to make a choice and, and that is where they see the potential and that is to that would squeeze out should it work as you say the the ndp potential here but i think there's but but i'm i'm highlighting because actually there's a double threat to the ndp and we saw a bit of that playing out in ontario where right service peeled away part of that working class base of the NDP and ridings that they hadn't been competitive in in a long time. And so what you could act, and, and you see to be fair to Polyev, he's working language and issues that are having some appeal to that community yeah. uh, and that have voted NDP and their switch vote is actually not liberal, but conservative. Yeah. And so you could actually have this squeeze between progressives and activists who are more concerned about what a Polyev government would do. And then on the other side, you know, voters who say, well, he, you know, Polyev's speaking the language and the issues that matter to me, and suddenly you're squeezed out of both sides, and that's, you know, I, I've lived that, seen it happen. It happened to the Liberals when Jack Layton was in power, and it happened provincially in Ontario in 2018. <laughs> it happened to me in the Kim Campbell bus in 1993. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I'm, I can it tell you that, It is not too. fun. <laughs> well, it's not. Look, I wouldn't recommend it. Not, not to pick at your old wounds, David, but, but <laughs> I do you. want to ask, right? Because you did work for Prime Minister Mulroney, and I'm not disparaging Prime Minister no. tremendously successful career, but at the end, it was clear he, had, he felt it was time for him to go. Absolutely, yeah. Right? So how do you know when you've reached that point? Because, you know, Ken McDonald talked about this, yeah. and he's only one MP doing it, but he's not the only liberal saying this. No. Uh, how do you know, and how do you convince a prime minister that it is time, if it is time, for them to leave? Uh, they have to convince themselves. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it is such an ultimately a personal uh, decision, and it's, it is hard to, to give up. But if you have a broader perspective about you know, why I'm here and why I'm doing this, and, and you know, for the party, for the country, at a certain point, you just recognize you have a best before date. Mr. Trudeau has an uphill battle, no question, with the image that he has and, and the baggage that he now, he now carries. The fact that there isn't an obvious successor is not a solution for him staying if, if, you, if you will he is still going to have mm. to work through it and so okay what are you doing to convince Canadians that I am still up for the job and I can convince you back on my side then you have to look at what is his behavior what is he talking about vacations other kinds of uh, things there so yeah you know ultimately it is a personal thing but yeah. uh, uh, and he's probably hearing some of it he's not you can't be you know uh, completely in, in non-sentient to what's happening around you in politics so uh, but you know it's very hard short of a of a palace coup or right. a push in the cabinet 
or something like that, a very British coup, if you will, to do it in the way that uh, they do it in the, in the UK Conservative Party. Uh, but he's going to have to decide that on his own. So far, there's no evidence that, it, right. that, he, that he will. But on the other hand, he probably shouldn't telegraph it. The moment oh, he opens over. the door, it's over. It's yeah. over, exactly. So, so, Tim, just as a final point, speaking of palace coups, uh, you know, there, there, is, uh, there is no Paul Martin to his Jean Chrétien. So uh, what do you think happens here? I mean, the prime minister says he's staying. The people around him say he's staying. I see no evidence he's leaving. Um, no matter how many people suggest that it should happen, What's your prediction uh, on what happens with the leadership uh, of the Liberal Party between now and the next election? He's staying and he's running again. All right. I think the, it is, I agree with David, it's a personal decision. People I know who, you know, talk to him and then, you know, personally, honestly about those kind of issues are telling me he's in it. He thinks he has a path to win and he's going to pursue it. Okay. Uh, guys, I always appreciate the insight. Tim Murphy, David McLaughlin, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have a dramatic development to tell you about in Canada-UK trade talks. The British government has announced it's walking away from the table. The bilateral talks began almost two years ago, and a major sticking point is how much access UK producers should have to the Canadian cheese market. International Trade Minister Mary Ng says she has expressed disappointment to her British counterpart. We've been at the table. We've had eight rounds. The United Kingdom is uh, a really important trading partner for Canada. They are our third largest single country trading partner at $46 billion, over $46 billion a year. So they are an important bilateral partner. Um, I, having said all of this, though, I'm very confident that we will be able to get back to the table. And I would encourage uh, my colleagues in the United Kingdom to uh, let's get back to the table because uh, negotiating is how we get a deal. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith is taking some heat today for this exchange with American right-wing media personality Tucker Carlson last night. I wish you would put Stephen Guibault in your crosshair. Is he an engineer? He's a, an environmental zealot. He happens to be our environment minister federally. Okay, that comment about the crosshairs prompted a swift response from federal cabinet ministers today in Ottawa. For Danielle Smith to bring the mouthpiece of the mega conservative far right to Edmonton Centre to spew hate, to incite violence against people who disagree with you, that's not how things should be done in Canada. This morning, Premier Smith was asked about her decision to appear with Tucker Carlson. I don't do a screening test to make sure that every person that interviews me matches 100% of what I believe. Okay, so what will Canadians make of all of this? The power panel is with me on that. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP cabinet minister, now chief of government relations at the University of Toronto. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. And here with me in Ottawa in studio, Vandana Cotter, political consultant and a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Okay, James, you were kind of dismissing this attack by the Liberals um, um, today in, in an earlier segment. What do you make of her comment about putting the crosshairs on Stephen Gilbo. I mean, the Liberals have compared that to inciting violence. How do you view what she said? I mean, dismissing, I think, the political impact. But look, I grew up in the 1990s in the conservative movement with Tucker Carlson was kind of 
normal. And he has wandered so far away from that. You know, 80% of what he says is sort of perfectly fine political commentary. It's the other 20%. You know, he's become a mouthpiece for Vladimir Putin. He's become an extremist advancing things like uh, advanced or, or uh, race uh, replacement theory and some really bizarre views. Uh, even at this event, you know, he, he sort of made a really ugly shot uh, questioning the or challenging the Prime Minister of Canada's uh, sexual orientation in a pretty crass and dumb way. Um, you know, Tucker Carlson, and the thing about Tucker Carlson is he knows he's doing this. Uh, he's mm -hmm. not just sort of a random conservative. He, he, you know, we know from the January 6th uh, and, and the lawsuit uh, against uh, Fox News and their and their support of the uh, uh, conspiracy theories around the voting in the, in the 2020 election campaign that T Tucker Carlson doesn't like Donald Trump, doesn't believe in Donald Trump, but he goes on the air and he's Donald Trump's biggest spokesperson because there's money in it for him. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a pretty cynical guy who advances some really ugly views in exchange for cash. Um, and he, he's, he's not a credible person anymore. He used to be years ago. And so he's become this sort of, you know, bizarre caricature of, of what sort of a right-wing person, uh, you know, would be. And he's making a lot of money doing it. So I'm frankly surprised that the Premier of Alberta would share the stage with somebody with, of, of, you know, his character and reputation. He was fired by Fox for lying uh, and, and in part of the lawsuit that Fox had to pay over $750 million in compensation to Dominion uh, voting for. And, um, you know, I, I just think he's a very dodgy person. And, and I think the Premier of Alberta should know better than to share the stage with him. So, so Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, James went through the litany of issues with, with Tucker Carlson and what he said. He did make this, you know, homophobic joke about the Prime Minister last night. And, and look, I, I know Daniel Smith has said, I don't agree with everybody who does an interview with me. Um, but this was a for-profit event, right, where Tucker Carlson was making money. And you go back to what he said when he launched his Twitter show. He called President Zelensky sweaty and rat-like, a comedian turned oligarch, a persecutor of Christians. I mean, I know you don't always agree with interviewers, but things like this are next level. Yeah, well, you know, to James's point, I mean, Tucker Carlson makes money by being kind of a right-wing, un awkwardly unfunny version of John Stewart or, or Rick Mercer. I mean, it's uh, sorry to Rick because I'm sure he's deeply offended at that. But, but you know, this is not somebody who is doing it for any reason other than to drive, you know, the margins to give him money, mm. and that's what's uh, what's at work here. What I thought was interesting was just how terrible Danielle Smith was in defending her own position last night. You know, when Carlson took on uh, Freeland and uh, was uh, talking to uh, uh, Conrad Black, Black pushed back on the accusations of fascism and Nazism. Daniel Smith did nothing. She just sat there and took it all in. Uh, and, you know, and I think that just shows you know, a real lack of leadership on her part of either understanding what's going on in the moment or being able to actually position her own view as being something bigger and more than whatever this you know, gross comedy is that is playing out with, with Carlson. So that, to me, was really one of the things that stood out last night, was just how um, inept she was at being able to defend her own agenda at the same, in the same way you know, that others like uh, Conrad Black, you know, for all that he's got issues, and we all know those issues, uh, you know, he at least did push back uh, on Carlson for some very uh, offensive and uh, clearly uh, right-wing American views. You know, Shachi, Daniel Smith is, is kind of a, a free speech, you know, absolutist, right? In, in the, the way, you know, she comes on the show uh, with, with frequency and she's always been generous with her time. Um, she's getting a lot of criticism from the liberals here. They're trying to link this as well to Pierre Polyev and MAGA style, which, you know, it, it's, it seems to be core to the liberal playbook right now. How do you think Canadians view moments like this or do they even care about something like what we saw in Edmonton and Calgary yesterday? 
Well, there's a photo from that event last night that shows Danielle Smith, Jordan Peterson, Conrad Black, and, and I think it was Tucker Carlson. Uh, and, and to many, many left-of-center Canadians, uh, that is a representation of the four-horse people of the apocalypse. That is what the Liberals are trying to tap into. But, you know, there is a massive risk for the Liberals in trying to draw a straight line from Pierre Polyev to Donald Trump to Tucker Carlson, even to draw a line between Daniel Smith and Pierre Polyev. Sure, they've shared a stage before too, but you see how canny the Conservatives are being around their associations with Doug Ford and Ford's caucus in Ontario. We've seen reporting on that today, and as well with, uh, with the uh, Smith government in Alberta. Uh, there are a lot of Canadian voters today who are kicking the tires on the CPC, who are testing them out, giving them the, uh, the sniff test, giving Pierre Polyev the sniff test, who do not wish to be tainted or shamed uh, with the with the, uh, the the brush stroke that a vote for Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives is a vote for Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or that style of conservatism. So this is where I say it's a risk for the Liberals because it could backfire, especially uh, if Pierre Polyev and I think that the the pressure and and the moment is on him now to demonstrate in the many ways that are possible that he is patently not Donald Trump. And what I mean by that is Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. He is a defamer. He may well be a lawbreaker. He is an authoritarian. I wrote about this in the Ottawa Citizen last week. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a lot of things that so far Pierre Polyev has not shown himself to be. And so, uh, yes, good for, for motivating that, that left of center base that appears to not be able to come behind the Liberals in any other way these days. Uh, not good if this ends up being the sword that, that cuts or stabs them. Right, and just to let you know, the Liberals did call for the Conservatives to denounce Tucker Carlson. What he said, we have a statement from Mr. Polyev's office. Justin Trudeau and his out-of-touch Liberals are yet again twisting themselves in knots to distract from the hurt and suffering they are afflicting on Canadians after eight years in power. Trudeau's desperate Liberal ministers will say anything in an attempt to distract Canadians and hope they forget about the misery caused by Liberal policies. That's part of the statement that we just got from Pierre Polyev's office. Vandana, what are your thoughts on this whole thing and how it played out? Um, I'm not surprised by Daniel Smith and the company she keeps. I think this, unfortunately, is um, Conservative Party today, not Conservatives like James Moore, who I deeply respect. But the difference is, is that I don't think this is drawing conclusion. Pierre Polyev, like, he uh, entertained the convoy. He has members of his caucus have sat with right-wing politicians. Uh, he had, like, misogynistic tags on his YouTube. This isn't drawing conclusion. This is pointing out the fact. And what Mr. Polyev can do is actually just denounce this. And if he denounces it, guess what? That whole argument for the Liberal Party is gone. If you can prove to yourself, like, I actually denounce this, I denounce this, what was said, I denounce these homophobic comments, then yeah, all the tires are blown out on that argument that, you know, Pierre Polyev is importing mega-style politics into Canada. This type of politics does not belong in Canada. And I disagree. I think Canadians are scared of this. Maybe not all Canadians, but the Canadians that that mega-style movement targets. You know, feminists, uh, people from the 2S LGBTQ plus community, you know, uh, you know, racialized Canadians, etc. Like, people do fear that. And I think the Liberal government isn't just basing this on one argument. You see the constant announcements on affordability. You see the housing announcements. I bet you they start up their economic weekly, when the House comes back, their announcements and how they're tackling affordability. And, you know, and understanding that 
inflation is a global issue right now. It's happening in the UK, it's happening in the US. This is something that Canada is in a really good spot in the G7. But you can do two things at once. You can show you can govern, you can show you can address these issues, and you can still point out who your opponent is. And I think uh, that is good for them because hate speech, this is not a freedom of speech thing. This is not someone that we don't like. This is hate speech. Hate speech causes harm. And you can have an opinion. You cannot make up the facts. And when you also, like Donald Trump, like Danielle Smith, when you, like Mr. Poiliev, if you are going to say that mainstream media is not real media or and you can't engage them, media is a very important thing in stabilizing democracy. Right? And again, people can have opinions, right. but you can have facts. So this is not drawing conclusion. This is pointing out exactly what he is. James, how big is the appetite for Tucker Carlson, Jordan Peterson in conservatism today? Because it seems to be, I don't know, a growing acceptance of it uh, or an attraction to it. And I don't know if it's generational, if it's ideological or what it is. What's your sense of where this all fits into conservatism or is it just totally at the fringe? I mean, they're, they're very different people, right? Mm. Jordan Peterson, you know, his book on his, his rules for living a productive and successful life, it's all pretty innocuous stuff, but there, there's obviously room for disagreement and all that. You do always have to be careful in public life about who you associate with, and the enemy of your enemy is not always your friend, so you have to be mindful of that as well. But with, with regard to what Vandana just said, and, you know, and I respect the, you know, the, the attack that's coming and will be coming with more velocity over the year to Pierre Polyev, there's a, there's a, other side of that edge that liberals need to be very mindful of. Pierre Polyev is anywhere from 10 to 20 or 15 points ahead of liberals in the polls. He has a 15 to 20 point margin over who would you rather have as a prime minister, uh, Pierre Polyev or Justin Trudeau. And Pierre Polyev comes out dramatically ahead of Justin Trudeau, who, who your preferred prime minister is. And if you start going around and saying this guy is a radical right-wing guy like Donald Trump, and he, uh, you start not challenging Pierre Polyev, you start challenging the judgment of Canadians. Pierre Polyev has been in public life for over 20 years. Canadians know what they see. They, they, they've taken him in. They've had an association with him for 20 years. They've seen him now as leader of the Conservative Party for well over a year. He's crisscrossed the country, and they kind of like what they see. And if you start saying to them that they're a bunch of fringe right-wing uh, weirdos like Donald Trump and his most uh, excessive comments and, and strangest followers in the United States, that that is uh, akin with Pierre Polyev, you, you look completely out of touch with Canadians. Canadians know what they see, they know what they hear, they know what Pierre Polyev and what he's not, and over the past year, the growth that he's seen in support with Canadians has only grown over time. So it's perfectly free to challenge him, but you cannibalize and hurt your own argument when you start uh, challenging the judgment of Canadians when they know what they see, and you start telling them that they don't see what they, in fact, know what they're, what they're seeing and judging. So be very careful about that argument. A Andrew, just a final point. Do you see it that way? How do you view yeah, I mean, what's happening here? It's an interesting question. I don't think we're by any means starting to see polyev mania across the country, and I'm not convinced that it's polyev that's actually drawing people into that party. It is a uh, real concern, deep concern right now with how the Liberals are governing. Uh, and what the other options are. And so, uh, you know, the, the ball is, I st think, very much in the Liberals' court. I just, again, wonder to what extent they want to go into this, you know, distractive uh, debate or uh, this distraction around, you know, every time the circus rolls into town, uh, rather than think about how they actually appeal to those middle-class mainstream voters, especially in southwest Ontario where the swing seats are, uh, rather than dealing with this stuff, uh, you know, that is obviously firing up the Western Conservative base. Okay, uh, we're out of time. I, there's a lot more to talk about in this, and I'm sure this will be a topic uh, at a future date. I want to thank the Power Panel, Shachi Curl, James Moore, Andrew Thompson, and Von Cotter. Thanks, gang. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.